0: well hello everyone today and and welcome welcome to worship hey let me ask you a question a question that I kind of want to keep putting before you throughout the message where are you in your journey of faith Back in the 1980s, I read a book by James Fowler called Stages of Faith. Fowler was a popular professor in certain circles. And combining some theological ideas with the best that we felt we knew about human psychological development, Fowler developed six stages of faith. And they've become quite popular in, again, The realm of theology, psychology, when you're trying to blend those. Well, the book certainly has a lot of provocative thoughts, but my challenge with the book was that I felt it was trying to codify or standardize faith a little too much. Because in my observation, God works with people in such profoundly different ways. Everyone is unique in a sense, and so I felt there's a little too much standardization. But I must admit this, I do believe that there are some commonalities as we journey with Christ, I do believe there are some commonalities in the the journey and the process that we go on. So today, I I want to mention three of those that come right out out of this story, which is the second miraculous sign that John gives us in his gospel, I want you to see, I want you to note that we can move kind of in and out of these stages really fast, particularly when God is bringing us through a time of personal crisis. So you be your own diagnostician, you examine your own life today, and try to figure out where am I on this journey of faith? The first stage I am calling a seeking faith. Let's pick the story up as John records it in John 4, beginning in verse 46. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, this man was obviously seeking for Jesus. He was searching for the Lord at this point. And I guess you could say you don't need a lot of faith, a lot of evidence in God to be a seeker. If you study the ministry of Jesus... While this man was looking for a healing, Jesus, as far as we know up to this point, had performed no healings. In fact, the only miracle that he had performed that we're aware of is the one we studied last week, the turning of water into wine. So uh, this man certainly hadn't seen a bunch of miracles, and yet he had enough faith to go seeking for Jesus. He left his home in Capernaum, some 20 miles away, he was wondering if Jesus could help solve his dilemma. Hey, let me ask you, do you remember when you first began to seek for God? Maybe you knew you needed something. There was a hunger. What Augustine called this spiritual vacuum. Later, Pascal talked about this vacuum inside of us, this void that only God can fill. I remember in my own young life, I, I was a mere seven years old. I can remember this distinctly when I began to really seek, to really wonder, to really kind of search for God in my life. I knew I was needy. I knew I had a spiritual need, that there was something about God that I wasn't experiencing. And so from the ages of 7 to 13, when I was finally saved, when I finally had a conversion experience, those were years of very much seeking for me. But I want you to consider, wherever you are in your journey, three aspects to this kind of seeking faith. You might want to jot some of these words down. First, he came with urgency. Now, it's my observation that few people stumble on Jesus casually. In fact, the Bible tells us in several places that it's the urgent seeker who finds God. Consider this verse, Jeremiah 29. God says to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me, with all of your heart. Some translations say, when you search for me with all of your passion or with all of your heart, there's an urgency to it. Or consider what Jesus said later in Matthew's gospel. He said, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door Will be opened. Now, those verbs used there, the asking, the seeking, the knocking, are not a one time deal. In fact, in Greek, they convey continuous action in the present. In other words, Jesus is saying to you and me today look, it's the person who persistently asks, the one who continually seeks. The one who will not stop knocking, who is going to really be the recipient. Interesting. Some of you are here today, I'm convinced, because you're seeking. I've talked to a number of people personally in the last few months that are on a spiritual odyssey of sorts, and I I ask them questions, and where are you, and what do you believe in? Hey, I'm so glad you're here. How did you come to know about grace? And and they tell me about this journey of faith. I say to you, bravo. And yet I'm amazed at at just, it's wonderful how open and candid people are about where they are. Many just say, you know, this personal relationship thing you're talking about, I I just don't know about that yet, but boy, I'm really seeking after Jesus. You know what? These words should be exciting to you. Because Jesus is saying, here's the person who keeps at it, who keeps on seeking and knocking. That's the person who's on a thoughtful pursuit of God, and they're going to find it. Now, some of you have read your Bibles a bit, may want to protest to me right now. I'm talking about seekers. And you may say, Pastor Rex, I thought you were a man of the Bible. Don't you know the Bible says? Now, I've had numerous people say this to me. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, no one understands, no one seeks after God. And that's exactly what it does say. But I hope you're listening. That is describing our state, our natural condition, apart from God's work in our lives. Yes, in our own broken, sinful nature, yeah, we're not seekers after God at all that is absolutely right and that's what Paul is describing there but when God begins to work in our lives it is absolutely appropriate as these verses have indicated to say that God first of all gives us a curiosity we as Jesus said in Matthew we become poor in spirit you know what that means? we're needy and we know it and boy if you're here today and you're needy, and you know you're needy, you are right where you need to be. You are a genuine seeker after God. Why? Because God is stirring you up. That's precisely why some of you are searching. God's creating this awareness, and it's awesome. By the way, Jesus said in this very book we're studying, John 6, verse 44, he made a provocative statement. He said... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, you can make of that what you want. Theologians have certainly had their day with that verse. But one thing that says beyond doubt is that God's the one who creates the stirring. God's the one who gets us started on this journey. And to me, that's very exciting. So he came urgently. And secondly, I want you to see he came Personally, Now, some of you go, that's so obvious. Why even point it out? Well, here's why. Because the text is very clear in verse 46 that he was a royal official probably in the household of Herod. Now, here's what that means. He had a lot of resources. He had a lot of staff. He had a lot of servants available. He could give a command and they would follow his command. All he had to do is say, look, to a trusted servant or staff, look, Go find Jesus. I've heard cool things about him. Tell him, look, my master, his son is sick. He really needs you. Please come and heal his son. But he doesn't do that. He comes personally. And there's no substitution for coming to God personally. I've met a few people along the way who it almost seemed they had the idea, you know what, if I can get my godly aunt to pray for me, If I can get my small group leader to begin to intercede on my behalf, if I can get some of my friends to begin to just kind of gang up on God and just keep pressing him and put the squeeze play on God, you know what? We're going to see some action here. Well, let me ask you. It's great to have your friends pray for you, by the way. That's awesome. We ought to be praying for one another. But do you ever come to God personally? You say, well, pastor, I think I'm in the seeking category. Can I really pray to God? Yes, you can. Can I give you a good prayer to pray if you're in that exploring, seeking phase today? Would you just say to God, and maybe in the private moments when you're alone with God, it's just quiet, say, God, would you let me see you as you really are? Boy, what a great prayer for a seeker. God, would you help me just to experience you And the life that you want to give, I believe that God honors that kind of prayer. But I want to tell you, that requires humility. This royal official probably had a pretty sizable ego, and he had to swallow his pride and recognize and acknowledge he had a need that only Jesus could meet. When we first start seeking God, our faith may be very small. It may be like a grain of mustard seed. Uncertain, awkward, and honestly, we've got about as much doubt as we do faith. That's usually how the seeking begins. And then when this man gets to Jesus, notice how the Lord responds in verse 48. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Wow. (laughs) Why such an apparently harsh word from Jesus? Let me tell you what I think is behind that. It's always great to study the Bible in context, by the way. And if you study the whole pericope, the whole section just before this episode, Jesus is a wonderful section. Jesus had ministered to a woman at a well in Sychar in Samaria. His disciples had gone into town to get some Food. Jesus sitting there by the well strikes up a... Con- that was crossing a cultural barrier. Oh, it's just a great study. And Jesus has this conversation with her. He tells her things about her life that nobody would necessarily know, especially a stranger. And she goes into the town and brings out many people in the town... And the Bible says here in John 4, 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Now, that was an exaggeration. He didn't tell her everything she ever did, that she's using hyperbole, but he told her about her marital history. He told her about the live-in situation she was in right then. He he showed her, I've got information here and insight into your life. Many of the Samaritans believed. And yet Jesus didn't turn water into wine. He didn't heal anybody. He didn't walk on water. The closest thing to a miracle here is the insight that he showed into the woman's life. And yet, many of the Samaritans placed their faith in Christ, even without signs and wonders. And now, Jesus is back in his home area of Galilee, and he's... Seeing a man come looking for a miracle, and he says, you know what? You people up here, that's all you're interested in. Why don't you why don't you just believe? And then third, this man came with urgency and he came personally, but I, I want to suggest to you that he tried to press Jesus to fulfill his expectations. Verse 49b reads, Sir, this is the man talking, Sir, come down before my child dies. He had faith, yes, bravo, but he also had a fault. His fault was he tried to stipulate to Jesus actually how Jesus should do what he wants him to do. He tried to press Jesus into the mold of his own expectations. Now, if you hear anything I say today, I want you to hear this. We've got a big problem when we try to use Jesus instead of just surrendering our whole life to Jesus. I'm going to say it again. We've got a big problem when we try to use Jesus instead of just surrendering our whole life. To Jesus. Now I know I'm getting personal here, but hey, I got to go for it. Have you been trying to dictate to God how He should work in your life instead of just surrendering to Him? Now here's my guess. If you've been trying to tell God exactly what He has to do in your life, my guess is you're disappointed. You may even be on the verge of disillusionment because In my experience, the Lord is original every time. Oh, he works, but he's going to work in the way he desires. And faith and fault get mixed up here. This guy has enough faith to seek Jesus, but the fault is enough to dare to prescribe to Jesus how he should do what he's going to do. Yet in spite of all that, it's pretty amazing Jesus says to him in verse 50, You may go, your son will live. Now that leads me to a second aspect of faith. There's a seeking faith which brought him to Jesus, but secondly, consider a resting faith. And again, ask yourself, Where am I on this journey? In verse 50, Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. And then note this next phrase, because I want to camp out here just a moment. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Now, it's a powerful tool when you're studying the Bible to try to put yourself into the skin of the biblical characters. I urge you to do that from time to time. Put yourself in the skin of the people in the story. So let's do it right now. How would you feel if you were in this guy's shoes? Your son, sick at home, on the point of death, you've come urgency, urgently, you're seeking, your heart is aflutter, you're filled with anxiety and a sense of panic. What am I going to do? You come to Jesus with high expectations. Your expectations are thwarted. You want to see his signs and wonders, but he's rebuked for that. He wants Jesus to come to his house, but Jesus refuses. How would you feel? Now, there's one other thing. Although all those expectations got shattered, he is left with one single thing. Watch this. This man walks away with one thing that he takes with him. That's all he's got to hold on to. And that is the Lord's word. The Lord's word. Now, here's my question for you. As you're examining your own life and your journey of faith, because that's my question, where are you in your journey of faith? Question, is his word enough for you? Huge question. Every true Christ follower has to eventually answer. You say, Pastor, I'd love it if the Lord would speak to me. What is that book many of you are holding in your hands? That thing we call a Bible is God speaking. Oh, I believe he also nudges us. I believe he also speaks to us in other words today. But it will always be in line with what is written down in Scripture. Scripture. And we have to ask ourselves, is God's word enough? This is a huge part of our growth and journey. Let me give an example of what I'm talking about. One of the things God says in Scripture, it's one of my favorite verses, is uh, passages, is Proverbs 3 5 and 6. Many of you know this well. Look at what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and, and He will make your paths. Straight, or he'll direct your paths, right? Promise and conditions. The conditions. trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. You don't have to understand it all. It doesn't have to make sense to you all the time. Just acknowledge Him in all your ways. And if you do that, here's the promise. God says, "I will direct your paths. That is the word of the Lord. I'm gonna direct. God says to you today, this is a word, you don't even have to wonder about this. I am committed to your direction in life. I'm already committed to that, God says. Question: Is His word enough for you? I don't believe it's enough for many of us because we're panicked, we're stressed. We're feeling choked by the pressures of life. We've got to know what's coming. We're pressing God, saying, God, please show me. And we pray prayers like, Lord, please give me this job I'm applying for. You know, it's just what I need, Lord, and oh, I really want it. God, I know you're going to give it to me, so please give it to me. And we say, please, Lord, lead me to the person you want me to marry. I mean, my goodness, I'm 21 already. I need to know. My life is passing before my very eyes. Lord, give me a new house. I've seen this beautiful house online. It is perfect for us. Please don't let anyone put in a higher bid. Oh, God, give me a raise. I'm struggling. I just need a little bit of a raise would really help. And you pray for these things, and you plead with God. And, you know, sometimes God doesn't do it, right? You don't get the job. My goodness, you're 22, and you don't have that husband or wife you prayed for. You don't need to have a girlfriend, and you're 22. <laughs> and somebody did put a higher bid, and you didn't get that raise. And then we up the ante with God. We try to twist God's arm a little bit. God, prove to me that you love me, Lord. Oh, prove it by showing me a sign, Lord. I need a real miracle here. I mean a real miracle. When I come to work on Monday morning up Hoosick Street, Lord, let every light be green. A real miracle. (laughs) Now, Lord, I've got belief, but I'm also prone to doubt, so just prove it to me, Lord, by showing me. And then I'll really know you love me. And when we do those kinds of things, you know what I think God is saying? What Jesus said in verse 48, unless you people see miraculous signs, you will never believe. Now, oh, spoiler alert here. Just, I love miraculous signs. I love miracles. I pray for them sometimes. I love them when God does that. But the problem with basing your hope on that kind of experience of a miracle, the problem with basing your hope on dramatic things is if dramatic things don't come, you think nothing is happening. And that's just not true. Jesus said, as we learned last week, my Father is always working. It's just not always dramatic and obvious. I'm going to tell you the basis of every problem you've got. How's that for a promise? Here we go. Are you ready? This is worth the world right here. The basis of every problem you've got is that the foundation of your hope is human experience rather than the word of the Lord. That's the basis of every problem you've got. Is that the foundation of your hope is human experience rather than the word of the Lord. We praise God for every experience. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But it's the word of the Lord on which we stand. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge In him, and a resting faith is simply taking God as at his word. Let me ask you, do you have a resting faith? Now, before we quickly move on and wrap up, I want to describe to you where this idea of a resting faith comes from. Verse 51. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday. So in other words, this is now the next day. The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. And the way the Jewish people counted time, that means it was 1 p.m. when the fever left him. 1 p.m. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Now, go with me here, because some of you think I've lost my mind here for a couple of minutes. But go with me. I'm going somewhere with this, all right? I promise you, I'm going somewhere with this. This man came to Jesus, all in a panic, all urgent, pleading beside himself, please come and heal my son. He had the encounter with Christ. Christ gave him his word, your son will be healed. That happened at 1 p.m. Now, I assume, I don't believe this man walked. He's a Roman official. He's got lots of, I believe he at least rode on a horse, if not in a chariot. That's an assumption on my part. The text doesn't mention it. But let's say he walked. To get 20 miles back home would have taken him, if he's really just kind of walking leisurely, it would have taken him maybe seven hours or so. And I found out this week, looked it up, that a horse walks at about 3.1 miles per hour. So if he was on his horse, again, it would take him somewhere around seven hours, just horse just kind of walking normally. I found out this week that a horse trots at about nine miles an hour, so you can do the math. If he was on his horse, horse just trotting, kind of leisurely, somewhere over two hours would take him to get back home. He left Jesus at 1 p.m. He'd have been home by three, same day. I learned this week that a horse ganters at about 15 miles an hour. You can do the math. It'd be somewhere over an hour, and he would have been home. And many horses, depending on the kind, gallop at almost 40 miles an hour. So if he had really ripped it up, he could have been home easily in less than an hour. So here's my question to you. It's the next day. Where's this guy been all night? Where's he been? I mean, he's so urgent. He's panicked. The stress is on. His son is dying. All Jesus leaves him with is his word. I mean, had he gone and visited his mother-in-law? Did he have business to take care of, friends to hang out with? We don't know. But all we do know is that the hurry to get home was gone. The urgency had gone. He had gone from a seeking faith to a resting faith. Why? Because Jesus said, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed, and there was no more hurry. Do you know how you know you've moved to a resting faith? The panic begins to go. You begin to relax a lot more. You begin to just kind of be able to have the peace of mind and the peace of God that passes all understanding, just pervades you. You can believe without evidence. He had no evidence yet. All he had was the word of the Lord. You can believe even without signs and wonders, as wonderful as they are. You just take God at his word. There's a saying in our culture, I've used it many times myself, Seeing is believing. You ever use that? Boy, I have. Seeing is believing. And we know what we mean when we use it. I want evidence. But you know what? There's a sense in the deep Christian life that believing is seeing. You take God at his word, you believe it, and then you begin to experience That's what Abraham did when God called him from Ur of the Chaldees. All Abe had to go on was the word of God. The promise, I'm going to take you to a land that I'll show you. You know when you're there, Abe. And on the sheer, naked word of God, Abraham left it all. He had a resting faith. That's what Noah did when he built his ark. God gave him a promise. And his neighbors must have thought he was crazy, but Noah had a resting faith. All he had to go on was the word of God, but that's all he needed. That's all Joshua had. God said, Moses has passed now, but as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you, Joshua, and now it's time to go into that promised land we've been anticipating, and I want those priests to take that ark up, and when their feet get in that water, I'm going to part those waters for you of the Jordan River. And all Joshua had to go on was the sheer, naked word of God, but that was enough. That's all David had when he faced Goliath, never faced a giant before. But he said, you come to me with sword and shield, I come to you in the name of the Lord my God. God's given me a promise that he's gonna deliver you into my hand, and standing on the sheer word of God, David acted. That's what a resting faith is does. One final stage of faith I'll mention, and that is a knowing faith. He went from a seeking faith to a resting faith. He took the Lord at his word, and then with that resting faith, he relaxed, and he took his time getting home because he just believed the word of the Lord. And John 4 reads, while he was still on the way, we looked at this a moment ago, his servants met him with the news, his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized it was the exact time that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And here's the phrase I want you to see. So he and all his household believed. And you say, oh, whoa, whoa, what time out. I thought he had already believed. He had. The NIV translated that in verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. The NIV uses a dynamic equivalent principle when they translate. And so took Jesus at his word is the word believe, pastuo. The King James translates that the man believed the word the Lord had spoken to him and went his way. Every other translation practically uses the word believed. He had already believed, but now, now, he has the experience, the full assurance that comes when you act purely on his word. The experience of God working, and now it's a knowing faith. Now, friends, I want to tell you This is when your children start really believing. This is when you build a sort of legacy that you can pass on to the next generations of taking God at His word and (laughs) acting on that and seeing how God will work. Let me ask you a question Does your family see that in you? Don't you know that did something for this household? I wish I knew who all was involved in the household there when it says he and his whole house. His whole household. I wish I knew. Were there a bunch of other kids? Who, Who all was involved in that equation? But whoever it was, they saw their daddy, they saw the man in this house go seeking after Jesus. And then... When they realized, wow, the panic is gone, they saw this man resting in Jesus. And they, now they saw a full assurance of knowing, wow, God is who he says he is. When your kids come home from school or wherever they spend their day, do they see that in you? When you face a crisis in your family or a hard time and your kids look deeply into your eyes, did they see fear? Or do they see faith? This is where we build a legacy to pass on to our children. Debbie and I stood this Friday with one of our dearest church families, Doug and Bev Nelson. Doug was in heart surgery. I think a quadruple bypass. And those of you who know Doug and Bev Nelson know that They are senior citizens, super senior Christians, as I like to call them. Some of the most amazing Christians I've ever known. Doug pastored for over 40 years. He's been on our staff here now for many years. He's prayed for and cared for many of you in your time of need. What awesome people they are. And we stood with Bev as her companion of 53 years was on the operating table. Is there any panic? She ringing of the hands, oh, no. She'd been down one too many roads with Jesus. She knows how to stand on God's word so that the panic begins to slip away and so that the peace that passes all understanding can begin to pervade every fiber of your being. And although she loves Doug dearly, she could stand there with confidence. I know the Lord's word is true. He told us he would never leave us nor forsake us. He told us this promise, I've been young, but now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And she knew that whatever the outcome of that operation, and by the way, he came through with flying colors, praise God, but she knew, she knew that whatever the outcome of that operation, God's got our back. And for Doug to live as Christ, if he lives, praise God. He'll go on ministering, and a lot of people will benefit, but if he dies, praise God. As Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die is better, it's gain, it's better by far. So let me ask you one more time as I close, where are you in your journey of faith? And here's my challenge, wherever you are, ask God to take you to the next step, because wow, it is one grand adventure. Father, use this study. Use this series in the Gospel of John to stretch us, to take us to places we never dreamed possible. Use this series, Lord, to grow us up and to take us to deeper levels of faith with you. What a journey this is. And thank you that you're with us every step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would the usher come uh, forward, please, as we get ready to receive God's uh, offerings and tithes? Let us continue to worship, and as we do, I just want to invite any of you who would like prayer to come at the end of that service,